Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? Go ahead and take a seat. Man, it's good to see all of you. Welcome to Park Community Church. My name is Rafe Chenery. For those of you that I haven't met before, I'm the pastor here at Park South Loop, and it is a joy to get to open up God's Word with you. We're going to be in Galatians today. Uh, if you've been around for a while, you know we've been working our way verse by verse through the book of Galatians, and we're in our last two sermons in this Galatians series. And I'm excited to open this up today and talk about God's biblical community. Galatians chapter 6, if you have it, Galatians chapter, I'm sorry, starting the end of chapter 5, but working through chapter 6, it's going to be on page 975 of your house Bibles. So if you got your Bibles, open up to Galatians, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and Otha over here, Otha, we got one in the front, and Otha will be dropping Bibles off to you. As you're finding that, let me pray for our time. Father, we lift this moment up to you. As we dig into your word, we are trusting that the power of the Spirit, the Spirit that we have talked so much about through this series of Galatians, that that Spirit would be at work powerfully inside each of our hearts. God, that your Spirit would have a way with us today, that your word would be transformative in our life, that we would leave here changed. God forbid any of us leave here having encountered the living God unchanged. God, I pray that you change us today. Anything I have planned that is not of you, I pray that you'd make me forget it. But what's of you, would you let it stick and bring about your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A man once spoke with the Lord about heaven and hell. And God pulled him aside and said, let me show you hell. And so God took this man and he brought him into a room. And in the middle of this room was a big pot of stew. Is just filling the entire room with this beautiful aroma. And there were people gathered all around this pot of stew that was in the middle of the room. And each of them had a very long spoon. A spoon that from where they were sitting around this pot of stew, they could each reach in and fill up their spoon with the stew. The problem was that the spoons were longer than their arms, so they had no way of getting that food into their mouths. They couldn't turn it around and get it into their mouth. Everyone in that room was utterly miserable. You could tell it was hell. God said, now let me show you heaven. And so he brought him into another room, and the other room looked just like that room. There was a pot of stew right in the middle. There were people gathered all around the stew, and each of them had a very long spoon. The difference was everyone in this room looked totally satisfied, full of joy, and enjoying one another. God said, all these people have learned how to feed each other. When writing on community on biblical community. One of my very favorite and most influential authors, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote these words. He said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Bonhoeffer's point is quite simple, and it really is about what is a church, what is a biblical community, And biblical community begins with Christ-centered, genuine love for one another. Love for those like you and those unlike you. Love for those who are easy to love, who are the natural people you might invite over to your home or go enjoy a night with. But, But love also for those who are unnatural for you to associate with and unnatural for you to love with, perhaps that are different than your normal group. Love for those that are easy and love for those that are hard. And a true biblical community can only be formed not by having a strategy in place and not by having this ideal of what we should be doing, but it starts 
with individual acts of love and service towards one another. Not just as an act of service, but genuinely looking across the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, and seeing in them the image of God, seeing in them the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that dwells in you, and saying, man, I love you, and I want to love you. I want to get to know you, and I want to form biblical community right here in our midst. Let me ask you this. Who here really knows you? Who really knows you? Who know, in this room, who knows your strengths and your weaknesses, your temptations and your struggles? Who, who knows all that stuff that you never want to share with anybody? Is it someone in this room? Because this is a biblical community. This is the place that God says here within the local church, this is where all the one another's get lived out in their beauty and in their power. So I ask it again, who knows you here in this room? Or is this a place you just come to get fed and then you go out? Or is this a place where you are participating in biblical love for one another? Another way I might ask this question is, do you ever, do you ever struggle with loneliness? You know, I've been reading a lot recently just about the psyche and about what's happening in our modern culture with people's minds and the issues they're going with. Loneliness in a big city where we're surrounded by people, where we have people literally living on other, the other side of the wall from us and underneath the floor from us, on the, on the level below us in our building, and yet we're as lonely as we've ever been. You ever experienced loneliness Have you ever experienced that feeling that you're surrounded by people and yet all alone and you can't really be fully known? The church stands against that. The church has the power, filled by the Holy Spirit, to be a community that actually steps into that brokenness that our culture is experiencing right now and says, this is actually what you've been called to. Everything the world tries to accomplish by community is perfected within the local church. Every community outside of here, even when they share valuable qualities that church also shares, loving one another, serving one another, humility, Other organizations and communities can share those things too, but none of them have the power that we have here because each of you are filled by the Holy Spirit and are committed towards the local church. This is a community unlike any other community. This is where God is seen in the very relationships that we have. We've been studying this book of Galatians, and if Galatians makes one thing very clear, it's this. Galatians starts with G. Hopefully you're remembering this, right? Galatians starts with G, and it's about the gospel of grace. If you want to know how does a person get right with God, you go to the book of Galatians. It's as clear as possible. Galatians says one thing. You cannot earn God's love. No matter how hard you work for it, no matter how much religious duty, no matter how much religious discipline you have in your life, no matter what you do, how many prayers you say, how many people you serve, how many mouths you feed, you can't earn God's love. You can't. It's impossible. It's like trying to jump to the moon. But rather, rather, God has earned his love for you on your behalf. When he sent Jesus Christ to die in your place on the cross, to shed his blood where you belong because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin and we are all cut off from God. We receive grace as a free gift of God. And as we study this book of Galatians, we've looked at all these nuances of our Christian life and character of how grace, now that we've received grace, how that makes an impact and a difference in our life. Today, we're gonna look at how it impacts this place, this community, how you love one another. Today, what I want to show you is three ways from these few verses we're going to have, three ways that the gospel enables genuine Christian community, 
three ways that the gospel enables genuine Christian community. Number one, starting in chapter 5, verse 26, the gospel roots us in the same humility that Jesus had. This is so important. The gospel roots us in the same humility that Jesus has. Now, I'm going to start us in chapter 5, verse 26, which might sound strange, because if you look at your Bibles, it probably has a header over, over the top of chapter 6. And I want to thank my Bible study team right over here, who made a great comment during Bible study this week, and they said, you know, I think the header should actually be above chapter 5, verse 26, instead of over chapter 6, verse 1. What you need to know is those headers... That's been put in by the Bible publishers. Those headers are not uh, part of the original text of the Bible. And so they're just trying to take their best guess. Where do we think this section starts? Well, I think it starts just one verse up. So let's start in chapter 5, verse 26. It says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The point I'm trying to make in this Part is called, it says the gospel is rooted in the same kind of humility that Jesus has. Paul says, don't become conceited. Now, what does that word mean? That word literally means vainglory. Don't have a, a vain or shallow sense of your own glory. It could be translated as empty of honor. It's this idea of a vessel that looks like it's going to be this real expensive, nice vessel, but then you go and you really inspect it and you realize it's just a piece of garbage that someone's painted to look nice on the outside. It's got no real value. Paul says, don't be like that. See, a conceited person, a person who's full of pride, is, is full of themselves. They, they have this sense of their self that the world revolves around them. It's very ego-driven. It's very self-absorbed. And everything around them and everybody around them is an object that is then used to serve their own needs and their own desires. We all know conceited people. The problem is most of us would not admit to the fact that we're conceited a whole lot of the time. It's easy to actually point the finger at someone else and say, yeah, I know someone who's real conceited in my life. It's much harder to hold up the word of God, look inside your own heart, and say, you know what, there's fragments of conceit in my own heart as well. He calls out two ways that conceit lives inside the Galatian church, and then I think it lives in our church as well. He says, number one, a provocative spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. A provocative spirit is someone who truly believes that not only are they conceited and the world revolves around them, but they actually believe in their own self-righteousness that they have something really genuine and true to offer. A provocative spirit is a competitive spirit. It's, it's a spirit that's always looking at someone and trying to find a way that they can prove themselves superior to that other person. A provocative spirit is always kind of looking down their nose at other people. It's always judging other people in a way of saying, huh, look, look at what they did. Did you hear what so-and-so did? I would never do that. I can't believe they behaved that way. That's a provocative spirit. And that's actually just one nuance of having a conceited spirit. That says that the world revolves around you. And a provocative spirit is rooted in the idea of self-righteousness. I, I know how to get ahead, and I've done pretty well. I've lived up to my own standard. Provocative spirit is self-righteous. The other form of conceit is what he calls an envying spirit. An envying spirit. He says, don't envy one another. Now, envy is literally rooted in the exact same place that the provocative spirit is rooted in. 
It's rooted in a self-righteousness. Envy is really just another form of self-righteous. This person constantly feels like there is a way to prove yourself. The only difference is they feel like they haven't lived up and that others are living up where they can't. It's still a self-absorbed lifestyle. It's still placing yourself as the center of your solar system. It just believes that you're failing at the moment and you're jealous of what other people are able to do. This spirit is marked by a chronic sense of failure, underachievement, and shame because compared to others, you just feel like you're not smart enough. You feel like you're not attractive enough, not competent enough, not gifted enough not organized enough, not educated enough, not successful enough, not rich enough, not prominent enough. You don't have all the things that someone else has. This is a person with a very low self-image of themselves. And Paul says this is actually a form of conceit because your world ultimately revolves around you. It's interesting that this envious spirit and the provocative spirit are rooted in the same form of self-righteousness. If we look over the last few decades, there's been a movement in psychology that they call the self-esteem movement. And the self-esteem movement has done some very wonderful things. I don't want to dismiss the entire thing altogether, but what it's done is it's looked at people who have very low views of themselves and it's tried to find ways to give them a better positive image of themselves. And it's come up with all these systems and things and books you can read of how you can begin to develop a more positive self-image. And while there's some things to rejoice in the benefits that have come from that movement, there's also much to learn from in some of the negatives that have come about. One professor at the University of Texas, her name's Kristen Neff, she's a psychology professor, she wrote this about the the self-esteem movement. She said, I think because of the big self-esteem movement, people just got it in their heads that the key to psychological health was self-esteem. But research has shown that because of this emphasis on self-esteem, we actually got a generation of narcissists, people who think the world revolves around them. See, the gospel is the complete antithesis of self-righteousness. If Galatians has taught us anything, it's that the world does not revolve around us, the world revolves around Jesus. And praise God that it revolves around Jesus, because if it revolves around us, it's a very small world. If the world is all here for Rafe Chenery, man, that is a world that I really don't want anyone else to be in. But if the world revolves around Jesus, the one I know from the gospel accounts, this Jesus that I get to live with and have faith in and has proved himself to me over and over again that he is beautiful and good and loving and knows you and cares for you, if the world revolves around him, there is a whole lot of hope for the world. There's a whole lot of hope for the world because he is good and he's proven himself. When we switch the gospel and make the our faith, ultimately some form of self-righteousness, we take Jesus out of the center and we make it all about us and Jesus becomes a tack on. See, only grace says you can fully rest. You don't have to prove yourself. Only grace says no matter how hard you try, even on your best days, you're still not earning God's love because you're so full of sin. Rather, God loves you despite all of your sin, all of your weaknesses. This speaks to both the conceited person who's got a provocative spirit and the person who's got the envious spirit. Because to the person with the provocative spirit, it says, hey, the world doesn't revolve around you. You haven't earned anything in God's love. It's all a free gift. And to the person with the envious spirit, it says, I see all your weakness and all the things you think you're unable to do by living up by your own standard, and I still love you. I died on the cross that you could have life to the full, and I'm not leaving you there. I'm switching your whole paradigm. I'm taking you out of the center, and I'm placing Jesus in the center. 
See, the paradigm gets flipped for the Christian, and rather than self-righteousness and pride having the centerpiece, humility takes the grand stand on the Christian's life. Humility over the years has been literally the, the primary term that has been used by theologians in every generation to say, if there's one marker of a Christian, if there's one marker of a Christian to define the qualities of their life, the characteristics, it's humility. John Calvin wrote more on humility in the spirit than just about anybody. There was a great man named Andrew Murray who writes literally an entire book called Humility. He says this, The highest glory of the creature is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of God. It can do this only as it is willing to be nothing in itself that God may be all. Water always fills first the lowest places. The lower, the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier and the fuller will be the inflow of the divine glory. It's interesting, when you look at Jesus, he was always going lower, wasn't he? He was always stooping down and doing the hardest jobs. He was always getting his hands dirty, loving people, and going to all the, the low places, quote, in society where no one else would go. He was always washing disciples' feet and teaching others to do the same thing. He was always being mocked and spit upon. He was always going lower. Vain glory, conceit, elevates us and it doesn't follow Jesus. He was humble and he invites you to a life that is defined by a posture of humility towards one another. But to do that, we've got to see Jesus as beloved. We've got to see Jesus as worth it. We've got to see Jesus as giving us rest and, and giving us that rest, that, that rest from the tiring and, and just numbing aspect of our lives that says we still got to try to earn something. Until we're able to rest in Jesus, we can't explain or understand humility. Number one, the gospel gives us a sense of humility that Jesus has. But number two, the gospel compels us to love each other as Jesus loved us. The gospel compels us to love each other as Jesus loved us. You see, the church is marked by the way we relate to one another. And Paul wants the church to literally be a city on a hill. When every other community in society is vying for position over one another, there stands one community in stark contrast to that that slows the pace down, that says it's not about us. Look in here and see genuine love for one another in a way that's radical. Look in here, all you people out in that city that are working tirelessly to prove yourself and build your confidence, look in this community and let us show you what real glory looks like. We learn to love each other like Jesus loved us. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He starts with this idea of brothers. And that can be translated brothers and sisters. It's, it's this idea that we are family with each other. And once again, I want to ask you, when you come into a place like this, do you have a genuine sense of family with the people you're sitting in the room with? You can't have family if you just jump in and jump out and you never linger and get to know people. Brothers and sisters are those who have done life together, who have been through hard moments with each other, who share insights with each other of what's really going on in their heart and allow ourselves to pray for one another and dig into life with each other. You can't be brothers with people that you barely know. 
This is a familial term. And then he says, if any one of you has fallen into a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. That word restoration, it's used a number of times in the Bible. One time it's used, a handful of times, is when it's talking about fishermen mending their nets. It's this idea that something was broken and they're pulling the nets out and they're taking time before they can use it again to actually restore the nets and put it back together again. In, in Jesus' day, that word was usually used as a medical term. It was the idea that if you had a bone out of place, that a doctor would come in and restore that bone and pop it back into place. If we think of it that way, restoration hurts. It doesn't feel good to get a bone popped back into place. But, but the thing about it is, if you never take the time to fix the bone that's out of place, you're going to have some kind of handicap for the rest of your life because you never took the hard work to actually fix what was broken. We're called to be gentle surgeons with one another. To love each other so much that we're willing to look into each other's lives and see the areas of our spirituality, the areas of our faith, the areas of our pursuit of Jesus that just aren't quite right and gently restore one another. Once again, you can't do that if you don't take time with each other, if you're not getting to know what's going on. Now, this is very interesting. When we think of restoring one another in the church, I think it helps to actually look at Jesus' words and, and try to understand how, what instructions did Jesus give us on how we're to restore one another when we fall in sin. Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. He says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge might be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then if he refuses to listen to you, then go and tell the church. Let's look at those instructions. Paul, or Jesus says, if someone in the church sins against you, transgresses against you, if we use this term from Galatians, if they have some kind of thing they've done to you where they've caused you harm, and it's not just a personal thing, but they broke God's desire and law for their life, and they're out of step with the Spirit, Paul says, Jesus says, out of love, confront them. See, it would be a very unloving thing if I see sin building up in your life, and I never talk to you about it. I never say, hey, this is... This is a distraction for you and for everyone else in the church to grow in in our faith. And actually, if we look back at Galatians, we've already seen Paul did this very thing with Peter, didn't he? When Peter was sitting around that table where the Feast of the Nations was taking place, and all of a sudden Peter started behaving in a racist way, Paul went up to him and he said, Hey, Peter, there's no way I'm letting you continue down that road because that's not the gospel in any way. And he confronted him just as Jesus instructed his disciples to do. What this means is we go to each other one-to-one. -one. We have the courage to step towards each other and in love and gentleness saying, I love you too much to not say something. We don't tweet it. <laughs> we don't Facebook it. We don't spread rumors about it. We don't go ask for prayer requests in our small group about it until we've sp spoken to someone about it. We go genuinely and we talk to them face to face. This takes Christ-centered courage. The easy thing to do is to live in the flesh and let one another go off into the wilderness. But if we're a community, then I want you to grow in your faith as much as I can. I don't want any sin to hinder you. And when I look at the Word of God and I see you going out of sync with the Word of God, I want out of love to come to you with gentleness and say, brother, sister, I don't think this is good. Jesus says that they don't listen to you, which is very common. 
Because honestly, sometimes it's hard to get feedback. If they don't listen to you, it says get two or three witnesses. Take time. This is not a rush. You're not trying to bludgeon someone into repentance. Get two or three witnesses who also say, you know what, I see this in this person, and go up to them and lovingly confront them. And if at that point they still don't listen, you come to the elders of the church and you talk to them about the issue. We need each other, and we need to have humble spirits in order to receive that feedback. Now let me tell you how this normally works and tell you two things to avoid in this. Number one, we need to have a posture that we can learn from anybody in the church. There is no one, if we've removed self-righteousness and we genuinely have a posture like Jesus that we're going as low as we can to be humble and receive the grace of Christ so that we can pour it out in others, that means there's no self-righteousness, there's no one person in this room that's more superior to anybody else in any way. That means everybody can be a brother and a sister to invest in someone else's life. Here's how it works for me. If someone were to come up to me after church, and say, hey, look, I've been a missionary in the Congo for 25 years. I was stoned and left for dead seven times sharing my faith. I've seen miracles happen. All of a sudden, they got my ear, right? I'd be like, what do you want to tell me? And if they gave me critical feedback over what I was doing as a pastor, I'd be like, okay, I'm listening to what you say. <laughs> Absolutely. But sometimes, honestly, when I get some feedback that comes in, one of the first things that I think when I get an email in my inbox that says, you know, I think we could be doing this a little better, sometimes I want to write back, why don't you try to be in the pastor of a church? <laughs> this is not easy to do. You know how hard this is? And then I got to step back and I got to say, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. This is the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, we love each other enough to speak to each other. And God has filled each of us with the Holy Spirit to have insight of how this should be an abundant, flourishing place where all of us are growing in our faith. And me, as much as anybody else in this room, needs to have a humble spirit to be able to hear from one another. We can learn from everybody. And number two, I've already mentioned it, but don't talk about it until you've confronted the person. Let me say this really clearly. If this is an issue within a, a marriage definitely you need to learn how to confront your spouse. I see this very often, very often. And I just want to step in pastorally and say, if you've got an argument with your spouse, you need to share it with your spouse before you share it with your small group. You need to confront your spouse. Marriage is where this all gets worked out in intimacy. But within the local church as well, within the local church, if you've got an issue with someone, before you share it in another group, before you start blasting it for the world to see, you need to confront the person directly and say, how, how can we gently restore each other? See, as a church, we recognize the only way this is possible is if that self-righteousness that lives inside of us has been removed. It's impossible. If self-righteousness is here, there's no way we can genuinely receive this kind of feedback and then actually see restoration take place. But, but once we're resting in the grace of Jesus Christ, once that actual paradigm shift has come that says you are a beloved son and daughter, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. No amount of weakness, no amount of shame, no amount of mistakes, no amount of putting your foot in your mouth, no matter what, the blood on the cross is shed on your behalf, and that means if you've received Jesus Christ by faith, his love for you is full, and your tank is full. Your love tank is full. 
You got no, there's no more room in here to fill it up or to deplete it because it's a constant inflowing. And the first thing we need to do is just rest in that love. If you're not regularly resting in the love that Jesus has for you, this is impossible. You'll never do it. We won't be a church that does this. If each of us are not just sitting before Jesus regularly, opening up the word of God and looking at the truths and meditating on the precious words of scripture and just saying, that's true? What kind of God is this that would love me like that? If there's no real sitting before Jesus, if the knees of your pants are not slowly getting worn out from time on your knees because there's just this this desire to be before God, this will never happen. It can't. Self-righteousness is what the world offers. Humility is what Jesus gives, but we don't get it if we don't spend time with Jesus. He is the humble one that gives us his humility. And he offers us this grace that says you're fully loved. You can't lose it. Once again, I want to quote Andrew Murray. He, he wrote the book on this stuff, literally. It's called Humility. He says this, true humility comes when in the light of God we've seen ourselves to be nothing. We have consented to part with and cast away self to let God be all. The soul that has done this and can say, so have I lost myself in finding thee, no longer compares itself with others. It has given up forever, ev- it has given up forever every thought of self in God's presence. And then listen to what it does. It meets its fellow men as one who is nothing and seeks nothing for itself, who is a servant of God and for his sake a servant of all. The humble man, the humble man, every, the feeblest and unworthy child of God and honors him and prefers him in honor as the son of a king. This is what Paul says, what he says next. He says, bear one another's burdens. This means that you're stepping in and carrying the weight of other people on your own shoulders when they have a burden. What is a burden? A burden can be anything that is hindering someone, whether physically or spiritually in their life. A burden could be a financial burden. It could be a spiritual burden. It could be a temptation. It could be a physical burden. It could be a safety burden. It could be a familial burden. It could be a a sickness burden. A burden is something that when you know your sisters and brothers in Christ, there's something that's weighing on their spirit. See, the people that you know well, when you haven't been around them in a while, and you see them, and you look at their face, and you go, man, there's something off. What's going on with you, sister? Right? We know that. And Paul says that's the dynamic of the church. And, And then he says, when you find out what the issue is, you bear one another's burdens. When was the last time you saw someone struggling with something here and you stepped in and you cared for them right there? When was the last time you asked someone, what's going on? And they said, here's what's going on. And then you hounded them until the situation was over. You kept calling them over and over. You didn't leave them. You didn't let them get off the hook early. Right? You didn't just do a quick prayer and then you were off and off to your business and never went back to the issue. But you loved him so much that you treated him like a brother. You stepped in and if whatever the situation was, you just overwhelmed them with your love to your own self-sacrifice. Because someone self-sacrificed on your behalf. You were willing to give up the things you'd rather do. You were willing to give up your time, what you were planning to do on your Saturday evening because you knew your brother and sister here in this place needed someone to step in and be with them. And you said, I'm giving up so I can give towards. This is what Christ has done for us. 
When we had a burden that we were carrying on our own, Christ stepped in and carried it on our behalf on the cross. He bore our burden so that we wouldn't even have to bear it. He's not even calling us to go as far as he's gone. Jesus went further. Jesus hung on the cross carrying our burden fully on his shoulders so that we don't carry one drop of it. It's all paid for on the cross. And now he says, be a little like me. Carry one another's burdens. Share it with them. Pour out your love towards them. This is what Jesus has done for us and he invites us towards the same. The third thing the gospel does when we think about gospel-centered community is the gospel calls us to seek approval from none other than Jesus Christ. We seek approval not from each other, but from Jesus Christ alone. Galatians chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Hear those words. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now this sounds almost a little contradictory. Each has to bear his own load and we're seeking the approval of God. Hasn't Paul just written an entire book of Galatians saying you can't earn God's approval? What is he saying here? Let's try to get this right because this is so central to the entire point he's making. First, the very last thing he says is each will have to bear his own load. This is not contradictory to what he's just said at all, that we carry one another's burdens. The word burden and the word load are two different words. A burden is a spiritual issue or something going on in your life that we step in and carry. When Paul talks about a load that we carry, he's talking about our life and everything that God has given us. He's talking about everything about your life right now, your circumstance in life, your relationships, your spheres of influence, your jobs, your money. Everything you have in your life is part and parcel of the load that God has given you to carry. Paul's talking about how we see ourselves as an individual who's part of the larger community. And he says, all of these things, your strengths and your weaknesses, are unique to you and you alone. You can't compare your story, the load you're carrying, the gifts you've been given to anyone else here in this room. There's no comparison. You don't know anyone else's stories. This is why you can't look down on anybody in this room. You don't know their story and you don't know their load that God's given them. Each of us has our own load and responsibilities before God. The load I've been given was to leave my corporate job to come here and proclaim the gospel from the pulpit. That's the load I've been given, and I do that as faithfully as I can. And each of you have been given a load, no less, no more. God has spoken to you and said, I've got a calling on your life. Here's all the tools you're going to need to do it. And your responsibility is to walk faithfully with all the things God's given you as your load, and to carry out his glory right in your very own life. It's this idea that says that we are going to give an account, and I cannot try to judge how I'm doing based on how you're doing. As soon as I do that, I have self-righteousness in my heart again. I've lost humility all over. It's gone. I've completely thrown humility out the window. If I'm trying to say, man, okay, I, I kind of have a sense of where I'm doing in my walk with the Lord based on anybody else, I lost it. We can't compare how we're doing in our time in the Word, how we're doing in prayer, how we're doing in our walking in the Spirit, how we're doing in overcoming sin and temptation to anybody else around us. That is between you and the Lord because only the Lord knows the fullness of your story and only the Lord knows the fullness of your load. You carry that before Him. And there will come a judgment day. 
And on that judgment day, if you've received Jesus Christ, God will carry you and bring you right into heaven where there is nothing you will have added to bring entrance into heaven, but he will also bring judgment on how you did with the load you were given. Not as a question of whether or not you'll go to heaven, but how did you do with the talents you were given? What did you do with them? Did you put it towards self-focus? Or did you put it towards the glory of Jesus Christ and what he's doing, reestablishing his beauty here in the world? Each of us will carry our own load. You see how transformative this is for a community. If we miss this principle, we miss it all. There's no humility if we're comparing ourselves to one another. The second thing we learn from this is that our stories matter. Our stories are so important. One of the reasons you can never compare yourself to anyone else spiritually, or frankly for that matter, in anything in life, is because you don't know their story. You have no idea what God's done and the burdens that they've overcome and the burdens they're dealing with and the things they went through as a child and the things they went through yesterday. You don't. Only God knows it imperfect. Even the people you know best in life, you only know a shadow of it. You only know a shadow of it. Even that person only knows a shadow of it. Jesus knows their mind fully and their heart fully. He's the only one who knows it all. Our stories matter. The things you went through in life that you thought were the end of the world. Those times that you cried so hard that you were sure there was no recovery. It's part of your load that you're carrying right now. And God intends to transform that and use the whole picture of your story to bring about his picture and his mission. No part of your story is off limits from gospel restoration and mission. None. It's all usable. It's all usable. There's not a broken piece in you because every broken piece is in the middle of being transformed by God and is used for his glory. We bring our weaknesses, we bring our imperfections, and God says, mine, mine. In the midst of it. You don't have to be perfect before you're used. Your story, that's mine. I own it. I'm going to use it. Yes, I'm going to bring about transformation, but don't think transformation has to happen before you can be used. Your stories matter. I want to quote and end my sermon on this just from the great Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Fred Rogers says it as as best as anybody possibly can. He says, if only you could see how important you are. He was a Christian, by the way. If only you could sense how important you are to the lives of those you meet. How important you can be to people you may never even dream of. There's something of yourself that you leave at every meeting with another person. I'm going to invite up our folks today who are getting baptized. So if you're getting baptized today, come on up.